Please be seated. I just want you all to know I missed that cue in the earlier service. So Jeffrey was kind enough to prompt me this time. Um, good morning, I'm Sandy Thurman and I want to thank you uh, for having me uh, here uh, this morning on this um, Mission Sunday. I want to start though by thanking and recognizing um, All Saints for its extraordinary leadership um, in the fight against AIDS from the very, very beginning of the epidemic in the early 80s. Uh, leaders like Bruce Garner and Harry Pritchett and many others opened the doors of this parish to provide the first place for people living with HIV and AIDS and their families to come and have support groups, to find companionship and communion. It made an extraordinary difference and was a life changer for so many people affected by the epidemic um, in this community. So I want to just recognize that um, as we start. Um, as I said earlier, some of you may or may not know that this is Mission Sunday. So we're going to talk a little bit about the way that we understand and engage in mission um, in these modern times and the way that mission has evolved greatly in some ways and in some ways has come full circle or back to basics, as it were. As Archbishop Desmond Tutu described in the National Cathedral a couple of years ago, mission makes us aware of the awesome love that God has for all of us. You don't have to earn God's love. He just loves you, period, end of paragraph, and everything else flows from there. I think it's a wonderful way to start about to talk about mission. He goes on, Desmatushu goes on to talk about the fact that God leaves his 99 perfectly white fluffy sheep in his flock and goes off to find the lamb who has strayed and is off in the bushes. And I don't know about you all, but I have certainly found myself on the, in the bushes on a number of occasions needing rescue. Um, he rescues the culprit. And that's the one that God lays lovingly on his shoulder and carries. I think that's a beautiful visual. Mission is acting out God's incredible grace and loving embrace, not promised just to some of us, but to all of humankind. An embrace that includes everyone and excludes no one. Over the past three decades that I've had the privilege to work in HIV and AIDS, both here in Atlanta at Aid Atlanta and later at the White House and now at the State Department, AIDS has provided societies and churches with endless opportunity of service to others here and in our own, in our own backyard and overseas. But it has also stretched us to confront our individual and collective fears and biases and misperceptions about other people. Um, facing everything and discussing everything from sex to homosexuality to race to gender norms to death and dying. Any taboo subject we've had the opportunity to deal with in HIV and AIDS. In an act of lifting the veil, as referenced in the scriptures today, the Episcopal AIDS Coalition in the early 1980s uh, coined the phrase for us, our church has AIDS. That was sort of revolutionary, but it also pushed us out of the closet to say, we are an inclusive community and we will stand in solidarity with those infected and affected uh, through the course of this epidemic, which we, I have to say, have done. In those early days, young men were diagnosed who were diagnosed with AIDS, particularly in the South, 
were rejected by their families and their churches, they wound up in Atlanta alone and dying, most often in the name of religion. The gay community in Atlanta, unlike those in San Francisco and New York, the big cities on the other coasts, hadn't developed um, an active community and infrastructure to deal with their own unique needs. And in response to that and those dark early days, people from this church and from all walks of life around Atlanta came together, black and white, gay and straight, uh, fathers who had lost their daughters, mothers who had lost their sons, many of us like Bruce Garner and like me who were losing our friends and were going to lose many more, all worked together to begin to develop a response and provide support to the people who were suffering in our community. It was an extraordinary time, I have to say. But we were all on a mission, on a journey together to co comfort those in need, to prevent the suffering um, of others, and to heal our own wounds in the process. What resulted was quite an extraordinary um, co continuum of community care here in Atlanta that provided health care and Meals on Wheels housing, emotional support, psychosocial support, the whole plethora of services that these people needed in their last days most of the time of life that has become a model for the nation and still remains so to this day. Former Secretary of HHS, uh, Lewis Sullivan, uh, said one time that AIDS does to societies what it does to the human body. It finds the weakest points and attacks there. And that was particularly true in the South in those days, and it's true across Africa as the epidemic rages on. You know, in hindsight, I find it amazing that we didn't have a worse epidemic than we did because everyone who was affected by AIDS wanted to blame it on somebody else. You know, this is uh, not, you know, straight people are not affected by this. This is a gay disease. Or, you know, black people aren't affected by this. It's a white disease. Um, or, you know, people in Africa are not affected by this. It's a Western disease. It just went on and on and on. No one wanted to claim it. And I always think back at a time in the early days of the epidemic when Coretta Scott King, uh, who was at the Carter, I mean, at the King Center, and I held the first AIDS 101. And we both got incredible pushback from our own communities because no one thought that the disease belonged in the other community. It's, you know, the community, the black community said, that's not an issue for us. And the, and the AIDS community said, well, we don't have very many African-Americans who are affected by this. So everyone wanted to make this go someplace else, but it wouldn't. And I always found it interesting to think that people could actually think the virus was smart enough to discriminate. That was kind of interesting. It was very funny. Um, but mission is about receiving God's love and responding in kind. It's about connecting with our own woundedness and becoming what the great theologian Henry Nouwen described as a wounded healer. Uh, Catherine Jeffords Shorey said, God comes to us in human flesh to give us the gift of love and then to be sent out into the world to share that love. It's about healing and reconciling and making God's love incarnate in the lives of the people close to us and in the lives of people far, far away. 
When I was appointed in 1997 by President Clinton to serve as the director of the Office of National AIDS Policy, which was called the AIDS Czar, and I was laughing, I said, I think I only took the job because of the title, and I thought jewelry came attached to the job, but it didn't. Um, I had never been to Africa. I'm a social worker from Georgia. What did I know? I had never been to Africa. But when I took the job, I made the commitment to some friends and colleagues that I would go and see firsthand the devastation um, of the epidemic on the continent firsthand. So I went to see for myself, and a few months later, I found myself standing in a hospital ward with 60 dying patients and two nurses. In those days, we had no drugs. Those patients were two to a bed. Patients were under the bed lying on cardboard. Patients were in the halls without blankets. In my wildest dreams, I could never have imagined the depth of despair and hopelessness that I felt standing there with virtually nothing to offer these people to reduce their suffering. I had a great title at the White House. I had a great office, an old executive office building, but I had no money for AIDS overseas. And an hour later, I found myself standing in an orphanage um, on the east coast of South Africa with 12 rows of cribs staring in the face of a baby who had lost his mother the day before. That evening, I made a promise to myself that I was going to do something about this, but God knows I had no idea what I was going to do. And as the sun set, I watched it go down, and I said to God, what the hell am I doing here? I, have, I am so far over my head. I have no qualifications uh, to do this. I don't know what to do. I was so helpless. But I have to say that the people that I visited were still really glad to see me. They weren't asking that I do something. They were just happy for me to be there. It was so incredibly humbling. And the only thing I could do for those people was to promise them that when I went back to Washington, that I would share their stories with others, and maybe out of that we would figure out something to do. So a few months later, on my next trip to Africa, I met a woman who gave me a gift that would change my life and ultimately change the lives of thousands of women like her. Bernadette was a grandmother in Uganda. She had lost 11 of her 12 adult children to AIDS and was caring for 35 grandchildren left behind in two mudroom huts, one for herself and one for the children. She had no electricity, no running water. The grandchildren had to literally, it's not just an old tale that my father used to tell about getting water, they literally had to walk two miles twice a day to fetch water. But Bernadette was enrolled in a U.S. government-sponsored program um, to do microfinance, and she had learned to uh, raise chickens and raise pigs and grow coffee um, in her little community. And with the little money that she had uh, earned, she was able to have 15 of those 35 grandchildren in school and provide the basic medications that we had in those days for her five grandchildren who were HIV positive to deal with their opportunistic infections. It was a pretty amazing success story. 
But during our visit, I sort of struck up a conversation through our interpreter with Bernadette, and I told her that when we were looking at her chickens, that one of the things that I loved most about spending summers with my father's mother on our farm in Tennessee was looking after the chickens. Then she smiled and nodded her head, but she kept watching me and watching me in that way that, you know, grandmothers watch you. You know how they do. You know, you don't get far away. They can kind of see you out of the corner of their eye and out of the back of their head. And shortly, she started to walk back to her hut, and she motioned to me to follow her, which I did. And then she said, um, she motioned me uh, to come in and sit down, um, which I did. And as I sat, she patted me on the knee and bent over a basket and pulled out a hard-boiled egg because I hadn't eaten all day. And she opened her hand and handed me the hard-boiled egg and looked me straight in the eye with a knowing smile and nodded for me to take it. And in that moment and in her gesture, I heard the voice in my head that said, take this and eat it. As I looked into her knowing eyes, I saw the face of God in Bernadette. And in her face also, the face of God of the AIDS epidemic. I also understood clearly that I was in the right place at the right time and as exhausted and overwhelmed as I was, I was not alone. Bernadette was with me and God was with me. The next time I visited Bernadette, I had a congressional delegation in tow. It was one of the nice things about a White House. You can take a plane and fill it up. Now, you kind of like that. There are some perks. And we had the First Lady of Uganda uh, in tow as well. And we had the reporter from USA Today um, in tow who few months, a few months later um, told Bernadette's story in the first ever full-page um, spread on the impact of AIDS in Africa that featured Bernadette and her grandchildren. That story was told on many more visits um, and in many more papers, um, but what it led to ultimately was our capacity to double our funding for global AIDS in Africa. It was quite a feat. Now I have to say that program well, that was just a couple of hundred million dollars. Today, that same program um, is a $6 billion a year program that's providing unprecedented health services to people across the developing world. We have 9 million people on treatment. We've prevented nearly 2 million infections from mother to child. The impact of that work has been extraordinary, and it began with Bernadette. I only share this story with you because we are all called to mission. But you don't have to have any special gift or experience to make a difference to someone in need. God knows I am testament to that. All you have to do is commit to showing up and acknowledge each person with dignity and respect. The rest will sort it out. Have a little faith. As Martin Luther King said, all you need to serve is a heart full of grace and a soul generated by love. Archbishop Tutu says, that by virtue of our baptism, we become God carriers, which gives us both the right and responsibility to share God's love with others. Now, if you work in infectious diseases, you kind of like that, you know, 
God carrier thing. It resonates with us because it's contagious. Um, but I think it's important for us to think about that, that we all are God carriers. We all are on a mission, a mission of peace and reconciliation with ourselves, with each other, and to be in relationship with God and to follow Jesus. We live in a rapidly changing world. The old institutions that we have clung to in the past are in need of, of repair, if not raising, while barriers that have divided us over the centuries are rapidly disappearing. That's good news and bad news. The resulting sort of angst and anger and chaos is a bit overwhelming in our societies, but the constant nature of God's love has never been needed more than it is now. I want to close um, today with a poem that I think illustrates this. That's a wonderful poem by James Russell Lowell called The Vision of Sir Longthall. Vision, uh, Sir Longthall was a knight who had spent his life uh, searching for the Holy Grail, and at the end of his life, he was slightly disappointed that he hadn't found it. He had not been successful. And so Jesus comes to him in a dream in the person of a homeless man, and in the dream, Sir Longthall gives Jesus offers Jesus a cup of water and a piece of bread. And in the dream, Jesus reveals his, who he is to Sir Longthall. And this is what he says. Jesus says, Lo, it is I, be not afraid. In many climes, without avail, thou hast spent thy life for the Holy Grail. Behold, it is here. This cup which thou didst fill at the streamlet, for me but now, this crust is my body broken for thee, this water his blood that died on a tree. The holy supper is kept indeed, and whatso we share with another's need. Not what we give, but what we share, for the gift without the giver is bare. Who gives himself with his alms feeds three himself, his hungering neighbor, and me. Amen.